always good to be among you. Good for me, anyway. <laughs> and uh, pray that, uh, indeed, the Lord would give us a blessing. If you'll open your Bibles to the 12th chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, the basic theme or purpose, maybe, would be a better way to put it. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is to encourage Jewish believers who had been suffering persecution because they worshipped the God of their fathers through Jesus Christ. Because they believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And they had been put out of the synagogue. They had, some of them, lost all their property. They were snubbed, um, put out of families. And there was a temptation, as you might well imagine, to think to themselves, well, we are worshiping the same God. We're just worshiping him with more light than we had before. And it would be much easier if we would simply go back to the synagogue and they can go ahead, you know, with, I mean, do what they do at the synagogue and we can, you know, we can go to the temple and all this, knowing in our hearts all along that Jesus is Messiah and Christ is all. But this would be, to, to do such a thing, as an answer to persecution, would be to sin willfully after we have received the word of truth. That's what is meant, I believe it's in chapter 10. And this, but this whole temptation that they had to go back, this was what uh, the writer of Hebrews was referring to when he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't go back. It's interesting, the, the word synagogue means to lead together or bring together. And of course, the church means to be called out together. And uh, so there is a lot of similarity even in what purpose was served by both kinds of assemblies, but there's no Christ in the synagogue, at least at this point. There was no Christ in the synagogue. Christ was in the church, was in the assembly of God's people. And... To forsake that and go back was disastrous. Now, in order to encourage them, in order to give some um, power to his, to his exhortation, he begins in verse 18, and we'll read here in just a minute, but he, in verses 18 um, through 24, he contra contrasts what they had left but, but were being tempted to return to, contrasts that with what they had in Christ. Now, if we, let's begin reading here in verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched 
and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now in these words, <clears throat> Hebrews gives us the character of that old covenant. And I doubt that there ever was a day before that day or since that day so awesome and so terrifying as the day that God descended on Mount Sinai and delivered his law. The Jews didn't realize what an awesome day it was going to be. They said to Moses, you go talk to the Lord and you tell him whatever he says, we'll do it. And then when the Lord showed up, their response then was, we don't ever want to hear from him again. You go and find out from him, but you know, we don't want to approach him. People say, I want to hear from God. Be careful. There is a, a safe way to hear from God. But... Um, it seems like encounters with God in this life generally leave a person worse off with regard to things in this life than he was before. But we have this description of a mountain that can be touched. And they weren't allowed to touch it, but they could. And this is an important point we need to just at this point to take note of, he described Mount Sinai. That's a mountain. You can go, and it's still there. We don't know where it is, but it's there. And if we can figure out where it is, we could go over. We could still touch it. They weren't allowed to. If they did, they'd die. They didn't have to go to the top of the mountain. You know, God descended at the top of it. They didn't have to go clear to the top of the mountain to die. Just touch the mountain at all. You'd die. So they could touch it, but they weren't allowed to. And then there was, um, speaks of the mountain that it burned with fire. And despite the fact it was daytime, it was blackness, darkness, and a tempest. I recall within a few years after I moved into Iowa and I had to get accustomed to an entirely different weather patterns there. But one time, uh, my parents were visiting, and we were standing in the backyard of the house looking west, and the blackest cloud I have ever seen in my life. And it just seemed to me it couldn't be more than 100 feet in the air. And it just come roll, coming across the field behind us. And I felt like I was going to get smashed. You know, well, it had to be something like that, even worse. I mean, you know, uh, sounds, a, a trumpet sound. I don't know, it must have been terribly loud or it wouldn't have bothered them. And voices, words spoken. 
fact, I don't think there'll be a day so terrible as that one till the day of judgment. And the reason that that day will be equally and even surpassing in its terrifying aspect is this. They share a lot of the same character. It's God arriving without a mediator. Now you think about that for a minute. Now Moses was a mediator, but not a very good one. Moses was terrified. Moses has been tried in every point, like the other Jews, and it was as big a failure as all of them. And yet he's the mediator. And they had to, it was from a distance, but still they had to confront God in his holiness, his righteousness and justice. And that's what judgment day is. And to do that without a mediator is a terrifying thing to think about. Now, as we, you know, these introductory remarks and about the religion that they had come out of, the religion God had saved them from, all of it characterized by that single day when God revealed himself really in a very um, attenuated <laughs> way. I mean, God didn't come out in the full blaze of his glory. It, it would have destroyed the universe, you know. It was uh, a small token of himself. But as we read through that and think of the, the characteristics of that day, to whatever degree the religion a person is involved with is like that day, to that degree they are departing from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there was nothing wrong with that day. You know, let, let's be careful that, you know, we, we, we'd say we're free from the law. And, and I'm cer certainly glad. But we don't find any fault with the law. The law finds fault with us. And actually, the covenant that God made of Mount Sinai was a perfectly good covenant if you had perfectly righteous people to make it with. As the scriptures say, God found fault with the people, not with the covenant. The problem with the covenant, it was weak in the flesh. And what that means is for that covenant to bring about any blessings, it depended on uh, the natural flesh of a human being being able to satisfy the demands of the covenant. You know, you can build a real strong house, but put it on a shaky foundation, it's going to fall down. And there are, there's a lot of religions, and a lot of religions that call themselves Christian, that sound a whole lot like what we just read in verses 18 through 21. They hold people in bondage through fear. They keep them terrified under a sense of judgment. Now, the gospel comes through and says things like, there is no condemnation of them who are in Christ. 
Consequently, we have the right to ask any self-proclaimed gospel preacher, if he's coming to those who profess the gospel of Christ, they believe it, and yet the preacher is trying to bring them under a sense of condemnation, we have a right to say, now wait a minute, there's no condemnation. That's pretty clear. Why are you trying to sneak some in? But there is this contrast, beginning in verse 22. But ye have come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come somewhere. He said, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched, but you've come somewhere. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is he says, you have come. Now, we believe in the sovereignty of God's grace. We believe God chose whom he would save. He sent his son to redeem them and sends his spirit to call them. But don't ever allow that to make you think that people do not come to Christ we say it's all of God and and understand that's absolutely so but we are not to take the blessed truths of God's sovereign grace and use that as an excuse to not seek the Lord you know um, we might be real happy you know or or, or tend to like to uh, quote No man can come to me except my Father which sent me draw him. And that word translated draw there would better be translated dragged. It's like like drawing a plow. You know, when you draw a plow through the dirt, believe me, it's not just trying to woo the plow through the dirt. You're pulling it hard. And, um, And that's true. No man comes to the Father, or excuse me, to the Son, unless the Father drags him. But they do come. If the Father drags them. And so we have come. And one of the things, and I say this to the to the young people here, because I um, I don't want you to misunderstand this. Now you have been given a big advantage over children who are raised in homes where mom and dad don't know the gospel. And they have to go to churches where the gospel is not preached. And you may listen to Drew and the other men in here that preach and the guys you know, like me that come as visitors and, and you hear about this gospel. Don't ever get the idea that You are saved simply because your mom and dad come to this church and bring you, and you grew up in this church. Do you want the forgiveness of sins? You must come to Christ for it. Do you want eternal life? You must come to Christ for it. 
But he says, you have come. And he says, you've come to Mount Zion. Now, when he described Mount Sinai, he didn't describe it by its name. He said, you, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Now that mountain, Mount Sinai, Sinai that can be touched, is contrasted with Mount Zion. And though he doesn't say it, what he means is Mount Zion that can't be touched. Now what's the difference? Mount Sinai is of this world. That's why you can touch it. The Mount Zion he's talking about is not of this world. Any more than the city of the living God that he mentions or the heavenly Jerusalem. Every time something happens over there in the Mideast, there's a good many professed Christians, you know, who are about ready to go over there and put on white robes and wait for the rapture. Or they say, I remember them telling me as a kid, oh, they've already got the marble quarried. It's in Indiana, and they're going to build that temple again. And then Jesus is going to come. No. No. <laughs> And as I prepared for this evening, it was confirmed to me. Now, I was raised in that religion. How come I know that, I'm not saying they won't rebuild that temple. I just guarantee you the glory of the Lord is not going to fill it. And God will never sanction the offering of those sacrifices again. That's done. It's done. But here's the reason. That religion had to do with things that can be touched. Now, often the scriptures will use just one of our senses to uh, indicate all of them. Most often it's sight. We live by faith, not by sight. But it doesn't just mean seeing. In other words, he's saying we live by faith not by anything that we can discern with our natural senses. And when you think of it, what is there about our faith that you can point to, that you can go touch, that you can go show somebody? Say, well, I believe God. Fine. Show Him to me. <laughs> yes, but I've got this Bible. Well, you know, I believe what's written in here, but this Bible is not my hope. Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, there was a time you could touch Jesus. Can't now. Oh, but I have a feeling in my heart. So do I. Sometimes I think it's a feeling in my heart. Turns out it was pizza. <laughs> it's a little indigestion. No, I've heard people say, oh, I went in that church. I could feel the Holy Spirit. And... <clears throat> If it wasn't that I had a lot of love and affection for the person that said that to me, I would have said, what, what did he feel like? Was he fuzzy? What, what is he? Now, the gospel affects our emotions. We may have emotional experiences, but that emotional experience is a response to the gospel. It's not the gospel. 
And you can have the very same emotional responses to anything. I was, uh, well, I think when you and I were talking, I can't remember. I was talking to somebody about, you know, church services these days and in the, you know, the big mega churches and things like that. And um, I said, you know, if you would take a picture, a, a video of the worship services of many of these mega churches, but no sound, and then take a video of a rock concert, no sound. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Now, I'm not saying that because it's rock music. I'm just saying it is a big show is what it is. It's things that can be sensed. We have come to something that cannot be detected at all by the natural senses. That's why the Lord told Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to see, that is to perceive the kingdom of God. You need a spiritual nature that can detect things that this fleshly nature cannot. When the unbelievers of this world say, well, prove to me what you believe. Say, well, if I could prove it to you in the way you mean prove, it wouldn't be worth believing. Really. We We are talking about the things of a God who exists outside of time and space. And we cannot even conceive of that in our natural minds. Try to think of anything without a reference to time and space. You just can't. People say, oh, our God's real big. I know what they mean, and and I'm not going to tell them not to say that, but it's more than that. Big means taking up a lot of space. He doesn't take up any space. He created space. He's outside of it. Now, he's eternal. I mean, we normally think of eternal meaning an endless succession of moments. Well, not for God. There are no moments for God. There's no time. You say, well, how does something exist without time? I don't know. But he does. He created time. We have come to Mount Zion, an untouchable mountain, a spiritual mountain. And it's also described as the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. Quite often, and maybe it's the case all the time, when the scriptures use the word heaven, it's not talking about some literal place right out on the edge of the universe you know it says that Jesus Christ ascended unto heaven but he was received into a cloud I don't think our Lord ascended you know what the universe is supposed to be nearly 14 billion light years across I don't think he ascended for 7 billion light years got to the edge of the universe and stepped into heaven I think the cloud surrounded him because really he was just gone Say, so where is heaven? I don't know. I don't know. I'll leave that to God to figure out. But I know this. You can't get there in a rocket ship. You can't get there by any means we could even imagine. It's not of this creation. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
Now there's an interesting concept. <clears throat> By the heavenly Jerusalem, do we mean heaven? Well, the book of Revelation says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And once you look at the description of it, it's not heaven, it's coming out of heaven. What is it? It's the church of the living God. That's what it is. It's us. It's God's temple. And we have come to that. We are part of that. We are part of something. You know, we might, we, people keep saying, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Well, in a sense, heaven's coming to us. Heaven's coming to us. But we are citizens of the city of the living God. One of the things that, um, or a quote that I've heard, and I don't know where it came from, if you do, and the person who said it is a false prophet, well, I'm just, you know, even false prophet. Someone said a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. So <laughs> we'll just consider it that. But I thought it was a great statement. It says, <clears throat> we are not, now talking about believers, we are not citizens of the world trying to make our way to heaven. We are citizens of heaven trying to make our way through this world. As the years go by, in my mind, I am less and less a citizen of this world or any place in this world. I wish I could say that was altogether spiritual. A lot of it has to do with just a complete disgust with politics. I don't want to admit I'm a citizen of anywhere. But I do know this. Our, Paul said our citizenship is in heaven, which means we ain't home. C.S. Lewis said, <clears throat> does not the fact that I cannot be satisfied by anything in this world evidence that I was made for another world? He's one of those guys, I don't know whether or not he understood the gospel, I'll leave that to God. But he got that part right, didn't he? Believers can be content in this world because content means Okay, I'll live with the way things are now. But we'll never be satisfied here. Like Abraham, we live in tents. We move around. We are not digging footers, pouring concrete, trying to make a permanent home here. And then it says... <clears throat> We've come to an, an innumerable company of angels. Now, this is a really unfortunate verse division. The word translated general assembly. And um, <clears throat> it actually, if you just took the words apart, the Greek words, it means all the marketplace. Pan agora. Maybe you've heard people talk about the Agora as the marketplace. And pan means all. So the whole marketplace. But <clears throat> what it came to mean, instead of just the whole marketplace, it was when everybody came to the marketplace because it was a festival day. 
So it was, wasn't even talking about a place so much as what was going on there. A joyful assembly. And what it says, um, you take out that verse division, it says, you come to an innumerable company of angels in joyful assembly. There is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. And there has been millions of them repent. Now there was an assembly at the bottom of the hill, Mount Sinai. There was no festival going on there. Not when God showed up. No joy. But we have come, and it says innumerable. Uh, The word is myriad. It means thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. And why shouldn't they be in joyful assembly? They should be in joyful assembly for the same reason we should be. Christ is on the throne. They saw things that must, you know, Peter taught, I believe it was Peter, said they, angels desire to look into these things. You know, don't get the idea angels know everything. They don't know everything any more than we do. Imagine, I mean, and and again, I don't know what heaven is like, but they saw God the Son become flesh and dwell on the earth. And they watched that, all that that we read in the Gospels. They saw him die. That must have been very mysterious to them. And it should be to us. But in a sense, they also saw that for a time, somebody wasn't home. Remember, our Lord was born here, but this was not his home. It was his world, but it wasn't his home. <laughs> you imagine what it's like when he came back home. I like watching those uh, TikTok videos and the, the reels and stuff, and my favorite ones have always been when someone who's been off to war comes home. Wives, moms, dads, children. What a day it must have been when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came home. And they have been celebrating ever since. And we are among them. It says you've come to this. And then you come to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. The Russellites, who call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses, but are not. They say this proves that he's, you know, he was a created being. Because it says he's the firstborn. This doesn't mean he was the first one born. Firstborn is a position in the household. It's the one who has the preeminence. Generally speaking, it was the first one born. But there's some notable exceptions to that rule. Like uh, 
Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David. You notice how all the important ones weren't the first ones born? <laughs> Our Lord wasn't the first human born. I'll tell you this, though. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first one that was raised from the dead never to die again. Everybody else who was raised from the dead died again. I don't know where Lazarus' tomb is, but it's somewhere. <laughs> and he's in it. Not our Lord. But he's the firstborn over all creation. And that's, that's how the church is defined. Those who have come to the church of the firstborn. You know, Joseph's brethren were jealous because it's obvious to them when it came time for Jacob to dole out the blessings, they knew who was going to get the double portion. And it wasn't going to be Reuben or Judah. It was going to be Joseph, the guy running around in the fancy coat, bragging about his dreams. And they thought they'd get rid of him. Didn't work. And he got the double portion in the land of promise, didn't he? You'll notice there's no tribe of Joseph. There's a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh, his sons. He gets two tribes. Our Lord Jesus Christ, he is God's firstborn. And we are members of his church. And then look at this, that, which are written or... <clears throat> The word really would, a better translation, enrolled. Enrolled. The names are enrolled. There is that song, is my name written there in the page, white and fair, and I can't remember all the rest of it. It may be a no good song, but that's a pretty good question. Is my name written there? It doesn't matter if I'm written on the church roll of any group down here. But boy, it means a lot if my name has been written in heaven's book, in the Lamb's book of life. Come to God, the judge of all. Say, well, that, that part doesn't sound so good. Wait a minute, you notice what happened to Mount Sinai? They wouldn't come to him. They dare not come to him. We have come to him. And we came to him, and he was not a danger to us. You know, the judge, in a perfectly just system, the judge is no da danger to the guiltless, is he? And if you are in Christ, you are guiltless. We've come to the judge, and I like the way Peter, he says, <clears throat> uh, I think King James says, you call on a father who's the judge of all the earth. You know, and The word means to address we address as father the one that the rest of the world has to call judge. Now, if, I, if my dad had been a judge, I would not have called him your honor. He wouldn't have asked me to. What would I have called him? Dad. Now, you think about that for a minute. You've come to judge of all the earth, but you don't call him that. 
That's not how you address Him. He has given us a spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And we say that to the judge of all the earth. It says you've come to the spirits of just, justified men, made perfect. Many brethren have gone before us and have been made perfect. Now we're justified, aren't we? We're righteous in the sight of God, and I'm sure glad. I'm also glad this isn't the end of it. This isn't the final part of our salvation. There's perfecting yet to be done, but God's going to do it. And yet, so certain is it that we are considered one with them. When Paul says there is one body, he never said that body was growing. There are not people being joined to that body. That body's been around since before there was any such thing as before. <laughs> that, that body is made up. We can go back at least as far as Abel. The Bible never definitively says whether or not Adam and Eve were believers. But we know Abel was. So he was, he's a part of that body. He is one of those righteous ones, justified ones. It's been made perfect. And we are with them. Have you ever noticed when you read about John's visions of heaven that his descriptions of heaven essentially sound like a really good church service? They are doing and saying the same things in heaven that we do and say here. They just do and say it better. He saved the best for last. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Have you come to Him? In your heart, come to Him. I like coming to this meeting. I like meeting with you all. When I get back in Iowa, I'm going to enjoy being with them, brothers and sisters in Christ. On this earth, there's nothing better. But it would mean nothing were it not that we had come to this one member of God's church. The firstborn, the head of the church, to Jesus, our mediator. When we come to God, we come to Him through a mediator and a good one. Mediator of a new covenant. And there's lots of ways, I mean, you know, there's characteristics of this new covenant that are completely different from that old one, but the one that just, it sticks in my mind and it was put right at the very end. And again, maybe that's saving the best for last. I don't know. And it says, in this new covenant, for I will forgive their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Now, God doesn't forget anything. He's not getting old. The word means 
or can mean many more things other than to, you know, no longer be cognizant of. It can mean, and this is what I believe it means, they'll never be brought up again. I was told in my, the church of my youth, you're saved by grace without any of your works. But then we're all going to have to appear before the judgment seat to give us an account. And then God, I remember one evangelist said they're going to play a movie of your life. Everybody's going to see it. All the stuff you thought was hidden going to be right there on a movie. I was talking to my sister. She said, well, it's going to be X-rated. <laughs> the very things we, we were told. We, I thought it was funny. I wasn't allowed to go to movies. Our church wouldn't allow it. But evidently they're going to show a lot of them in heaven. And they're going to be some pretty nasty ones. Our Lord said, I'll never bring them up again. I remember one time I was just, I was broken hearted over sin, you know. And if you're like me, it's same old sin all the time. And I was just broken hearted. And I said, Lord, I've done it again. And I didn't hear an audible voice, but the, Thoughts went through my mind. You did what again? Now I know that our Lord would have known exactly what I meant. But He wasn't going to bring it up. And into the blood of sprinkling it speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, Abel's blood, its cry, it was good. It was a cry for justice, and justice is good. And God said to Cain, the blood of your brother cries to me from the earth. Cries for justice. Cries for vengeance. Why is the blood of Christ better? Because the blood of Christ is the answer to the blood of Abel's cry for justice. Abel's blood cried out for justice. Christ's blood supplied the justice. And as that hymn, Arise, my soul, arise, says five bleeding wounds he bears. And I quoted this to you the other day, but I'm going to do it again because it's good. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransom sinner die. The Father hears him pray. His dear anointed son, or dear anointed one, he cannot turn away the pleading of his son the spirit answers to the blood and tells me I am born of God don't ever go back because <laughs> all you can go back to is things that can be touched and things that will kill you we have come to something much better well may God bless his word